Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a delightful speech given by W. Cleon Skousen, recorded in Raymond, Alberta, Canada, in 1975. This is a beautiful recap of the Old Testament laid out with simple hook dates, which gives the listener an easy historical perspective from Abraham to David and Saul, on to Jonah and the Lost Ten Tribes, right down to the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lehi. I suggest you grab a pen and paper and jot down these few simple hook dates that will help you personally in your study of the Old Testament. This speech can be found in the larger volume of talks given by W. Cleon Skousen called Favorite Speeches of W. Cleon Skousen. Today's speech is in volume one, speech number three. You may also enjoy his three textbooks on the Old Testament titled The First Two Thousand Years, From Adam to Abraham, The Third Thousand Years, From Abraham to David, and The Four Thousand Years, From David to Christ. These can all be found at skousen2000.com. And new this year, we have available the audio versions of these textbooks at audible.com. Now sit back with pen and paper and laugh and learn with the audience as we listen to W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! My brothers and sisters and friends, I'm just delighted to be back in my home territory. And to be accepted, uh, I appreciate. But I have been gone a long time except for occasional visits. And one of the most pleasant was just two or three years ago when I came back with the BYU Continuing Education Program or BYU Education Week. And I was just sitting here tonight thinking of a little incident that occurred after I left Calgary where I had to speak Sunday morning and make my way very rapidly down to Raymond to make my report after these many years. And I was assured that... uh, if I didn't show up, that I would have even less hair than I have now. (laughs) So this was an important engagement, and I got within about, um, I'd say, 45 or 50 minutes of Raymond, and the car heated up and stopped. And we had passed a little town, just uh, six miles or so, and there was nothing to do but somehow get back there and see if I couldn't get some help. So I went out on the highway, and much to the consternation of my relatives, the only car that would stop and pick me up was an old jalopy with a a carload of hippies. And uh, um, they were very cordial and friendly and sat on one another's laps and made room for me. And so my family didn't know whether they'd ever see me again or not. And I took off back toward this little town. And as we were coming up to the town, I saw a chapel not far from the highway. These uh, young people had assured me that everything was closed on Sunday. There was no possibility of getting a mechanic. Not even the service stations were open. And I said, well, I do appreciate the ride, and, and we'll see what we can arrange, which they assured me was impossible. So I saw next to the highway a chapel with a sacrament meeting just letting out, an afternoon sacrament meeting just letting out. And I said, stop the car, stop the car. And they said, well, that's a church. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yes, but I think I can get some help there. And so in sort of amazement, they let me out, and then they just kind of parked near, near the intersection to see what would happen. I went up, I introduced myself to the bishop, I said, I'm due in Raymond here in just about 45 minutes to speak uh, there, and um, 
I, my car is stalled. I don't know whether anyone here can help me or not. He said, don't worry about it. He said, my counselor here has two cars. <laughs> and he turned to him. He said, didn't your wife bring her car? And uh, he said, yes, she did. And can Brother Skousen here use yours? And he said, well, of course. And the bishop said, now, don't worry about your car. We'll get one of our brethren who's a mechanic. We'll go out and probably just needed a little cooling off. And uh, we'll bring it tomorrow night uh, to the uh, to Lethbridge for the program there. And so I got in this very lovely car, uh, moved out. I'd only been in there not over three minutes. <laughs> and I, I came out and waved to these hippies. <laughs> As we went on down, and I picked up my family and arrived in Raymond one minute before the meeting was supposed to start. And um, I thank my Heavenly Father for his church, for his brotherhood of the priesthood, for this marvelous worldwide organization that is now making it possible for us just to come in and say, I'm Brother Skousen, I'm in trouble, I need help, and it comes. It, it was just another demonstration of how the kingdom is developing all over the world. Same spirit. I met with the saints in Hong Kong, and then we went over onto the mainland, and I met with them there. We met with them at Taiwan. We've met with them in New Zealand and uh, Australia, where our son is now on a mission, way out on the west coast near, near Perth. Uh, we've met with them in all over Europe. It's the same. Everywhere you go, it's the same. And if I have time tonight to tell you the story of Gabriel Tabor, it might not, might not, I might not have time to work it in, but that's his famous theme. It is the same. But anyway, I have two very important uh, counts to give you tonight that represent tremendous, Im tremendously important breakthroughs in the scholarship, in research, and in the fulfillment of prophecy. So I'm going to tell as much as I have time to tell, and when the clock uh, says one minute, two, or whatever it is, why, then we will conclude. But I will tell you as much as I can. My story tonight begins way back with some of your ancestors. And uh, if you have a little piece of paper handy, let me give you some dates to put things in historical perspective. I think it was very thoughtful of the Lord to have his most important personalities come at a time that's easy to remember. I have all of my students memorize certain dates in ancient history so that no matter what scripture they're studying or what class they're taking, if it's pertaining to the past, they have a frame of reference. I perhaps should start out with the Great Flood and give you the date so that you will never forget it. So if you will write down one, two, three, four, and then don't say five, put another four. So there's one, two, three, four, and a little pause, and another four. One, two, three, four, four. Now strike the one. That means that's the number one flood. That's what that one is for. That's the number one flood. You now have the date of the flood established scriptorially from father to son, two, three, four, four B.C. Do you think you could say that now? 
2344 B.C. And I'll ask you again maybe in a little while, and you'll be sure and remember it. So that when you're sitting in Relief Society or a priesthood meeting, and the teacher says, uh, back at the time of the Great Flood, about 3500 B.C. or 4, whenever it was, you can hold up your hand and say, it was 2344 B.C. You see? Now you have to be real humble when you know that much. <laughs> anyway... It helps to take some of the fuzziness out of our presentations. Now, uh, about a hundred years after the flood, we had the great continental separation, which must have been fantastic. The Babylonians talk about it, the Egyptians talk about it, the Greeks talk about it. They say that for years uh, afterwards, when you went into the Atlantic, uh, through the Straits of Gibraltar, we would call it today, the sea was in great turmoil, it was muddy, and they thought, of course, a continent had sunk. It didn't. It departed and went west. And North America broke off from Europe. South America broke off from Africa. Another tectonic plate got caught in the middle, and those three plates joined together to form the Western Hemisphere. A land choice above all of the lands on the face of the earth, the Lord says in the Book of Mormon. Now, scientists assume that that separation took place very gradually, one inch per year, as it's now doing. And as scientists, they would have to assume that to be the case. But actually, it happened very fast. And now that we've explored the floor of the Atlantic Ocean, we find no Atlantis, but we find the great scar that was left when this tremendous division took place in the days of Peleg. And if the flood was 2344 B.C. and the Great Division occurred about 100 years later in the days of Peleg, that puts it at about 2244 B.C. for the Great Division. The next momentous date is 2000 B.C., which is the date of our great common ancestor that is common to all of us, not a common person by any manner of means, Abraham. This is the century that belongs to Abraham. 2000 B.C. And his sons then come about a century apart, his descendants, so it's kind of easy to keep track of. We all remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Abraham, 2000. Isaac, 1900. Jacob, 1800. Joseph, 1700. And then Joseph's grandnephew, or yes, grandnephew, Moses. You, you skip one generation, and that's 1,500 for Moses. And then our great Ephraimite ancestor led the hosts of Israel across the Jordan River and overtook, uh, uh, was able to conquer and pretty much overcome the land which became known as the Promised Land, the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine, named after the Philistines, and that was 1,400 B.C. That's Joshua and the conquest of Palestine. We have then about 300 years of apostasy and dark ages, and we come down to 1100 B.C., and this is the time of the great prophet, political leader, spiritual leader, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And when the people rejected him primarily, at least they used it as an excuse, the apostasy of his two sons, they demanded a king like the heathen nations, and in 
a spirit of heartbreak, Samuel went to the Lord and said, uh, they have rejected me. No, God said, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. And in place of prophetic priesthood leadership, they now want a king like the pagans, and I will give them the best man available, but they won't like it. They won't like monarchy, but I will give them the best man available. And so during this same century, you have Saul. Samuel and Saul are both 1100 B.C. And Saul was rejected because of his presumption in trying to offer sacrifices in place of the priests. And therefore, a young boy with uh, the down of a teenager on his chin is set apart by Samuel to be the next king. And Samuel did this in a very interesting way. The Lord said, now stop mourning over Saul. He was a kingly person, but he has disobeyed me not once, but several times. I want you now to go down to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and set apart a son that I will show you. And so uh, the first son that came in, you remember, was so handsome. And Samuel said, the Lord knows how to pick them. Oh, that's fine. The spirit said, that's not he. The next one came in, he was good looking, and Samuel said, oh, now, this is going to be all right. And the Spirit said, but that's not the one either. And he went through all, we can't tell whether it was six or seven sons, but as many as there were, that we have a different figure in different scriptures. Finally, all of the sons that come through, the Spirit wouldn't accept any of them. Samuel says, you must have another son. No, Jesse said, I, I have a boy, but he's herding sheep. And Samuel said, fetch him. And as this teenage boy came in, rustic clothes, the spirit said, that's the future king. So be it. <laughs> so little David sat down, and Samuel uncorked the bottle and anointed him king. Can you imagine how that family must have felt? Not our little David. This is frightening. The king will kill him if he finds out about this. And Samuel said, that's what the Lord told me to do. Goodbye. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, the Lord uh, wants him anointed king, so be it. The Lord didn't say to unseat Saul. He just said, anoint David. And so Samuel said, I've done it. Going home. Which he did. Well... As you know, David rose up to power, was king of Judah for about seven and a half years, and later made king of all Israel. And then he was followed by his son. The great golden age of all Israel is this great nodal century of 1000 B.C. That belongs to David and Solomon. Isn't it interesting? Abraham, 2000, and then David and Solomon, 1000. See, just a thousand years apart. Now put down 922. As Solomon died in 922, a great tragedy occurred. He had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam cannot become king without the common consent of the people. He therefore goes up into the mountains of Ephraim, all of the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, are called together and they are asked if they will accept Rehoboam. Our great ancestor of Ephraim named Jeroboam said, along with the others, 
Will you reduce the taxes? And after Rehoboam had conferred with his associates, they said, double them. We will all do better. This is the bureaucracy speaking. <clears throat> so Rehoboam came back and announced that he was going to increase the taxes. Jeroboam said, Israel, to your tents. And they took ten tribes, divided them completely off from Judah, afterwards drove out all of Levi, so the two tribes that remained were Judah and Levi, and they remained separate. With Ephraim, your and my ancestors in charge, that led the ten tribes into apostasy. And that's important to remember. Two hundred years of apostasy by the northern tribes of Israel. They were so wicked that their crown prince was intermarried with Jezebel. You remember Jezebel from um, what's now Lebanon, Tyre, Sidon. And she came over and introduced not only the most profligate practices, but um, she had all the prophets killed. Elijah thought he was the only one. He was the president of the church, had all the keys of presidency, thought he was the only one left. And when he had fire come down from heaven, consume the sacrifice, she still wasn't converted. He just went down to Mount Sinai. He went all the way down uh, along the Jordan River, across the desert, and down to the mountain of Moses. Went up high on top. The mountain shook. There was fire. There's hail. And finally the Lord spoke with a real soft voice and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> Elijah said, well, I came to die. I'm the only one left. And I'm ready to come home. The Lord said, what am I going to do about those 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal? You haven't even anointed Elisha to take your place. What are we going to do about anointing the new king? Ahab's about to die. What are we going to do about that king up in Damascus? He's about to die. We, we don't have anybody now to anoint his successor. Elijah said, you, all that's going to happen? Yes, Elijah, get back to the mission field. Well, he said, I... Um, I didn't want to cast any more pearls. And they really don't deserve any more. No, the Lord said, I have much to do. Get back. And so he went back. And we say that 900, the year 900 belongs to Elijah. And 800 belongs to Elisha, his successor, who performed every miracle that was subsequently performed by the Messiah. Everyone, including raising the dead. That was done by Elisha. And now we come down to the famous year of 721. It's just 200 years practically, 201 years since the northern ten tribes separated. And now all of a sudden the Assyrians sweep in from the east, that fearful people that had so frightened Jonah that instead of going to preach repentance to them, he fled even from the uh, instructions of the Lord, just scared him so terribly. Those Assyrians were a cruel and brutal people. When they would conquer anyone, they would bring the leaders in. They would start tearing out their tongues. Some they would skin alive. Others they would put on sharp poles and set up like statues. That was to terrorize the people so they would keep the peace and pay their taxes. 
And when the Lord said, Jonah, you go tell them to repent. <laughs> Jonah went that way. <laughs> but he was intercepted. And after, after three days and night of careful meditation, <laughs> the whale delivered him back on the shore. Sick whales always go to shore. If they can't digest whatever they have, they always go to shore, which was convenient for Jonah. As a matter of fact, I've thought that perhaps coming up was a lot more traumatic than going down. And after he washed himself off, there was the Lord who said, Jonah, Nineveh. Jonah was perfectly reconciled to martyrdom and said he would go. And he expected to be martyred. That's why he went one day inside the city. He walked, it was three days across the city walking. It was a big city. So he walked in one full day before he made his big announcement. He wanted to have some kind of an audience, you know, before this begins, this uh, tearing out of tongues. But as it turned out, he got to deliver his whole message and those people repented and God spared the city. And Jonah was very unhappy and said to the Lord, you know, these people deserve a Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. They deserve to be destroyed. But I said to myself, if they repent the least little bit, you'll go soft. <laughs> the Lord didn't argue with him, but you remember how it all ended up and there was a gourd. And anyway, the Lord reasoned with him and he said, Jonah, you didn't build this city, you see, and if it's destroyed, it's really nothing to you. I've got 120,000 children in there, Jonah, that don't know their right hand from their left, and their wicked parents have tried to repent. Don't you think we could spare this city? Well, these people repented for a period of about three kings, and then they started marching out again, and when they did, their cousins, the Babylonians, said, this whole thing has to stop. And they mobilized the Medes and the Persians and other people, and in 721, you have the Assyrians striking out, trying to conquer as many people as they can on the west and capturing the northern ten tribes. So that's when they took the northern ten tribes over to their territory as they were trying to conquer fast. They're moving out now very rapidly. It's been, you see, some 75 years nearly since Jonah. They're on the move again. And they want to conquer, conquer, conquer. So they took our ancestors, dragged them over onto the Tigris and Euphrates River, and the Babylonians kept mobilizing, attacking them, attacking them. And now the next big date is 612 B.C. 612 B.C. The Babylonians conquered Nineveh, capital of the Assyrians. And down she went. And the word went through the camps of Israel. Our people, ancestors were scattered up and down the river. Run! Run! The Assyrians are down. Nineveh is destroyed. Our conquerors are on the ground. Run! And they fled over the Caucasus Mountains, which extend from the Black Sea to the Caspian Sea, and landed on the other side, which is southern Russia, and the Crimea, and the territory around the, Black, the northern side of the Black Sea. That's where they landed. Now, the... the um, Ten, northern ten tribes having been conquered by the Assyrians and then allowed to escape after the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. This left the Jews all to themselves. 
He'd left them all to themselves. With the Levites who were driven out by our people in their moments of apostasy, they drove out the Levites. So that left the two great tribes behind, the Levites and Judah. Now, among the Jews today, you will hear them identify the Levites among them. They do it with a special name. They've tried to keep the two tribes separate because the Levites have a very special calling. They preside in the temple. They preside in the sacrifices. And so they are called Kohens, and that means priests. So whenever you find a person who is maybe identified as Jewish but whose name is Kohen, that means his family says they are really Levites. Levites. When I have Jewish friends, sometimes I, we, we have a, an interesting conversation as I say, did you know that Moses was not a Jew? Of course he was a Jew. No. Well, the Bible says he was. No, the Bible says he wasn't. Well, that's your Bible. Our Bible says he was a Jew. No, your Bible says he was not a Jew. He wasn't. What was he? Levite. He is a grandson of Levi, brother of Judah. There were 12 tribes. There were 12. And Levi was one of the brothers. There was, of course, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And you get down to number 11, that's Joseph, that's us. And then you get over to um, um, Benjamin, Benjamin, the last of the sons. That's Paul's great ancestor. He was a Benjaminite. You mean Moses wasn't Jewish? No, he was an Israelite, but he was not Jewish. He was a descendant of Levi, the brother of Judah. And our people are all descendants of Joseph, the 11th brother. And we're all kinsmen. We Levites and we Jewish people, and we Josephites, some Ephraim, some Manasseh. Joseph had two sons. And as one of my friends said here just recently, amazing, Moses was not Jewish. <laughs> that was a real surprise. But that's why, that's why it's so important for us to sit down with our Jewish brethren who have to help us in this great work that now has to be done before the Messiah comes so that we can join now and get the job done. Because as Isaiah says, and Jeremiah said it, we're supposed to do this together. We have a big job to do. Zechariah also said it. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them. I will hiss for them and gather them and redeem them, and that they may do the great work that has to be done before the Messianic era begins. So we're calling to our friends and our relatives who are Jewish, who are Levites, and we are saying, come, the great restoration, the great resurrection spoken of, of Israel has occurred, and now we have a great job to do, a great task. Now, we're down to 721, we're down to 612, aren't we? 612. All right, will you just leave that now? Now, we just leave that suspended, because I've got to leap over the Caucasus Mountains into southern Russia and see what happened to those people, because... About the time that they arrived over there in 600 B.C. and began settling down, there were other people spreading across Europe. Two great migrations that the scholars identify. The first people to spread over across Europe were descendants of Japheth. We would call, the, the, Israel would call them Gentiles, meaning they're not of us. They're a different people. They were descendants of Japheth. 
We call them the Chimerians. The Chimerians. It's spelt with a C but pronounced like a K. And there were branches of them that became very famous. In the British Isles, they were Celtic Welsh, the Celts, remember? Spelt also with a C but pronounced like a K. C-E-L-T-S. The Celtic Welsh. Are you Welsh? You've got some Celtic blood in you. Are you Gaelic-Irish? Ah, you are Celts. Are you picked Scotch? Are you Scotch? You are Celts. Right? All right. They are followed now by another great wave of Japhethites. These are Gentile peoples. The Book of Mormon talks about them all the time as the people of the Gentiles. And a lot of us have that blood flowing through us. The second great Gentile migration were the Scythians. The Scythians. These became the Franks, known as the French. These became the Goths, known as the Germans. They settled all of southern Sweden. They moved up into all the Scandinavian countries. Uh, they became the Visigoths and others who conquered Rome. They settled Spain. Uh, they went down into Italy. They went down into Greece. These are the Scythians who become dif different tribes. All right, now that's the setting in Europe. It's loaded with Japhethites, or as the Israelites called them, Gentiles, meaning strangers to us. Now, about 63 B.C., and you can put this date down, about 63 B.C., Pompey, P-O-M-P-E-Y, of Rome, having conquered Greece, is moving into this territory of Turkey around the Black Sea. And our ancestors got nervous because they had settled in the Crimea and all around southern Russia. As far as we know, the entire ten tribes had been there. We don't know about the ten tribes. We know about one group of them. They were called Yinglings, Y-N-G-L-I-N-G, meaning youth, and it implies rebellious youth, which Ephraim always was. They took off in the first century B.C. as the Romans began moving around. How do we know this? They told it in song and poetry every time they met in a festival. They memorized it. And those memorized poems and songs were translated into Icelandic, Norwegian, and now English. And we have the saga of the Norse kings. We know exactly what happened to these people. And now we found out something else that's even more exciting, but I have to hold that for a minute. Uh, the Yinglings came up under Odin, the first century B.C. Woden or Odin, worshipped through all the Scandinavian countries. They, they, would, uh, they had a high water table around uh, the, the Black Sea, so they buried their people above ground. That became their habit. And everywhere these people went, they buried their dead in mounds, 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 all up through western Russia, all across Gothic Germany into Jutland, which is now Denmark. Uh, Odin then went over to an island in the Baltic Sea called Odense. Odense, you Danish missionaries. Then he went over to Zealand, where Copenhagen is. Then he moved in on the Goths in Sweden, set up his capital at Uppsala, just above Stockholm. And there are those mounds all the way from this and other generations. Let me just read to you what it says about those mounds. The burial mounds of these people extend the length of Europe. In Sweden and along the Baltic they abound. In Tainum Parish, Baholson alone there are more than 2,000 mounds. 
the largest being over 300 feet in circumference. In Uppsala, there are nearly 600, and that's where Odin was buried. I couldn't count 600 when I was there three, three years ago, but there were a lot. At Ultona, 700. The greatest number found in any one spot is east of the ancient Brook of Bjorka, where there are over 1,000 of them. It is possible to trace the migration of these ancient peoples from the Black Sea up the valley of the River Dnieper in Russia to the Baltic and thence to northern Germany and Scandinavia. Since they belong to the same people, it is no wonder that those as far away as Sweden contain ceramics and jewelry very much like these which were found in the mounds along the Black Sea. But now, the exciting part. They dug into the mounds. Who are these people that built mounds and settled Sweden and became Scandinavians and who then conquered England in big waves, drove the Celts back, intermarried with them so that you began to get Celtic yinglings and uh, Irish yinglings and Scotch yinglings and Dutch yinglings and French yinglings and Swiss yinglings and Gothic yinglings. Who are these people? They dug into the mounds and they found hundreds and hundreds of funerary plates written in Hebrew. They've been translated and listened to them. Here's one of them. I am Yehudi, the son of Moshe, the son of Jehuda, the mighty, a man of the tribe of Naphtali, of the family of Shimlai, who was carried captive in the captivity of Hosea, king of Israel, with the tribe of Simeon together with other tribes of Israel. We're on their trail. We're finding them. Uh, to one of the faithful in Israel, Abraham ben Marsinka of Kirsch, in the year of our exile, seven, um, 1682, which the envoys of the Prince of Rosh Meshach came from Kiel to our master Khazar, Prince David from Hela, Habor, and Gozan. Those are the cities where the Assyrians took the Israelites. You've got them named in funerary plates, to which places Tiglath-Pileser had exiled the sons of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh and permitted them to settle there and from which they have been scattered throughout the entire east, even as far as China. Here's another one. This is the grave of Bukai, the son of Esau, meaning Isaac, the priest. May his rest be in Eden at the time of the deliverance of Israel in the year 702 of the years of our exile. And Rabbi Moshe Levi died in the year 726 of our exile. Zadok, the Levite, son of Moshe, died 4,000 after creation, 785 of our exile. You see what we've got in our hands now? Hundreds and hundreds of ancient Israelite funerary plates. These are part of the ten tribes. That up to 100 B.C., many of them were still there because that's when that, those funerary plates were given. Now, who are yinglings? They changed their name when they got to Jutland to Yengles, to Angles. And after they'd conquered the Scythian Saxi or Saxons, they became known as the Anglo-Saxons. In 450 AD, they were invited over by the Celts in England to help conquer some other Celts. That was a mistake because they never went home. And so today, if you go to England, there's one whole section called Eng East 
Anglia. Anglia. There's another section called Essex. That's East Saxon land. They never went home. There is Sussex, which is South Saxon land. There is Wessex, which is West Saxon land. And later on, their other cousins, the Danes, came over and conquered the whole lot and called it Daneland. That's the story. That's who you are. Everybody in this room, practically, are descendants of those people. You knew from your patriarchal blessing you were of Israel. But we can now prove it from artifacts. We can scientifically show that you are of the house of Joseph the Yinglings. What happened to the rest of them? We don't know. We can't find anybody but Yinglings or the house of Joseph in Europe. Everywhere we're finding people, their genealogy is Yingling, Anglo-Saxon, Joseph. Nearly all of Ephraim. Well, that's our story. When the American founding fathers established the Constitution based on Anglo-Saxon common law, Jefferson said what we really ought to do is to get rid of all of the accruements that attached itself to common law in England that came from the, common, uh, from the continent and go back to the ancient law of the Anglo-Saxons prior to 800 A.D. when it was pure because those institutes of freedom came from ancient Israel. Jefferson said, you know what we ought to have for a seal for the United States of America? We ought to show Israel crossing the wilderness with a pillar of fire, meaning God is leading. And on the other side, we ought to have um, the profiles of Hensha and Horsa, the first two Anglo-Saxons that were invited in by the English, the British, to help fight their fellow Celts. Well, <clears throat> that's the story. We've now established it. That is Joseph. And the Book of Mormon said that when America was discovered and the Gentiles began coming across, the first Gentiles would just scatter the Indians who are Israelites of Manasseh. And then other Gentiles would come and finally refugees, religious refugees, who would cut themselves loose from the mother Gentiles, meaning that the Revolutionary War would be a success, written 600 B.C., that that group of migrants from the Gentile countries would win. The house of Joseph would be established in America, as Father Lehi said on his, in his deathbed sermon. This land was given to my people, and to those other Gentiles whom God would bring, and to none else. None others have a permanent inheritance in this land except those that are my people and those whom God will bring and who are obedient to his commandments. And the Book of Mormon has a special message for the Jewish people who would be in this land to encourage them to receive of the gospel when it would be restored, that this would be the first free people in modern times raised up on this continent. It's a thrilling story, but if I tell you any more of it, I won't have time to tell my second story tonight. So I've got to stop right there and go back now to 600 B.C. I got Joseph over here. Now I've got to tell you a little bit about Judah because we have found out some things that the Jewish people knew that we didn't know that they knew, which I think is as exciting as discovering who the Yinglings were. Did you ever know, want to know who you were? Now you know. Now, let me tell you this part of the story before we put down any more dates. The prophet that about 15 of the Jewish 
scriptures talk about that would be raised up in the last days to help introduce the great messianic era turned out to be a man with a very humble name, Yosef or Joseph. Wouldn't have really mattered what his last name was. He was born in a very humble circumstance in the state of Vermont, uh, received his calling with practically no opportunity for preparation. He was very much like Jeremiah, which according to Jewish tradition, uh, received his calling at the age of 14. He had to be prepared. The Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants, he called him while he was still unschooled and unprepared so that no one would have any question in their minds that this could not have been his work. Isaiah, you see, was very learned when he was called. Not this Joseph of the latter days. Now, keep this in mind as I share with you this fantastic and exciting story that comes to us from Jerusalem. One of the most learned scholars of Hebrew University was named Yosef Klausner. Joseph Klausner. K-L-A-U-S-N-E-R. Joseph Klausner. Joseph Klausner wrote a book for his own people, telling them all about the Messiah everything that they could find out about the coming Messiah. It's called The Messianic Idea of Israel, published in English by the Macmillan Company in 1955. So I wondered what the Jewish scholars of this day would say about the Messiah. I get to part, book three it's called, chapter nine. I can't believe my eyes. Dr. Klausner said, you know, <clears throat> among us there is an ancient and highly respected tradition, that before our Messiah Ben David comes, Messiah means anointed one, Ben means son of, and David or David, you see, before the anointed one who's a descendant of David comes, there must be a Messiah Ben Joseph, an anointed one, son of Joseph. He said this is not in our scripture. It may have been, but it is not now. But it is among our most ancient traditions, highly respected. And this Messiah ben Joseph comes to prepare the way for the Messiah ben David. Now he said, according to the tradition, which both the Jews and the Samaritans have in common, we know several things about this Joseph if the tradition is correct. Number one, he will be a descendant of Joseph through Ephraim. It will be his assignment to begin the great gathering of Israel. It will be his assignment to call all Israel to repentance and establish the new law and covenant among them, including the Jews. And Dr. Klausner said, traditionally he is supposed to come about the same time Elijah comes. And according to the tradition, he will not be alive when the Messiah ben David comes, he will have been killed. There's the life of this Joseph of the latter days taken and the citations quoted are right out of the most respected Jewish uh, annals, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Midrash. And so Dr. Klausner said, <clears throat> I don't know why it isn't in our scripture, but at least that's the tradition. And so he said we, we would have to expect a Messiah ben Joseph before we will have our Messiah ben David. We will have to have the one who prepares. Oh, I couldn't believe my eyes. Um, I, I, I thought, I wonder if he's still alive. I wonder if he's still alive. I checked, 
and Dr. Klausner had died in 1959. I didn't get over to Jerusalem until 1962. And I thought to myself how wonderful it would have been if I could have gone to the Hebrew University to the office of this very famous scholar, knocked on the door and said, Dr. Klausner? Yes? I have good news for you. Messiah ben Joseph has come. Of course, he knows all about it now. <laughs> but I would like to have had the great thrill of introducing him to this tremendous thing that has happened in the earth. Joseph has discovered himself and has been asked to reach out his hand to Judah that the two may be strengthened, as Zechariah says, and joined together in this great opportunity for service which is necessary before the Messianic era can be established. Now, keeping this in mind, that the great era of Joseph and Judah has begun as a great preparatory union and joint operation of these two tribes that the prophets talked about. Let me share you this story, or share with you this story. Remember we were talking about 600? The great prophet among the Jews, 600 B.C., was the prophet Jeremiah. He had been trying to get the kings of Judah to repent and to cooperate with the Lord in preserving the people. Assyria is down and gone. The new power is Babylonia. Jeremiah said to Jehoiakim the king, Be ye subject to Nebuchadnezzar and live. Jehoiakim said, I like Egyptians. No, Jeremiah said, <clears throat> You will bring the destruction of Babylon on this city. Not Egypt, Babylon. But Jehoiakim persisted. And... Uh, Along came the Babylonians, 606 B.C. That's a little bit before your date here. They conquered Jerusalem, told Jehoiakim to be subject to Nebuchadnezzar. He was smart enough to say yes. You know, you put a sword at the juggler, and it makes it easier to say yes. Nebuchadnezzar said, I like some of these Jewish young men. I'll pick up a few. So he picked up one... Um, named Azariah, remember him? And another one named uh, Mishael. And another one named, what was it, Nehemiah? And another one named Daniel? And of course you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the song? He said, these we will make our, our um, agents. We'll teach them the Babylonian language. We'll send them back as sort of governors. And you remember what happened to Daniel, who was renamed Belshazzar, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are all Babylonian names. Those four Jewish boys did very well in Babylon. With the help of the Lord, Daniel interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar so magnificently that Nebuchadnezzar came right off his throne, knelt down in front of Daniel and said, You are the man. I'm going to make you mayor of Babylon. And Daniel said, I have three friends. <laughs> These Jewish boys stick together. He said, I would like to um, be your advisor. 
and have my friends be mayors of Babylon. Oh, the king said, that would be nice. I need a good advisor like you. So Daniel became viceroy. You see what the Lord was doing? He was trying to set up his chosen people for the sake of the few righteous who remained among them. So that during the great hour of power of Babylon, they would be well treated. But Jehoiakim, he likes Egyptians. He conspired with them. And in 600 B.C., over we have Nebuchadnezzar coming over. And he killed Jehoiakim. He wasn't paying his taxes, for one thing. And he put his 21-year-old brother on the throne, named, the Book of Mormon scholars, as the verse 1 of the Book of Mormon, and in the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah. See, those are the A students. A students. King Zedekiah, these things began to happen. Now, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Now, all right, now, I hope you've learned the lesson from your brother. Be subject to Nebuchadnezzar and live. Zedekiah said, but I like Egyptians. No, Jeremiah said. No, no, no. You must be subject to Nebuchadnezzar. This is the word of God to you. But in spite of that, Zedekiah brought in the envoys from Egypt. Jeremiah said, all right. Hear the word of the Lord God, Jehovah. The temple of Solomon will be destroyed. Most of the people will be killed. The city will be destroyed. And the remnant carried off to Babylon because of the wickedness of the king and the people who will not hear the voice and counsel of Jehovah. Thus saith the Lord. Well, when that was published, there was a businessman in Jerusalem, very wealthy businessman. He knew the people were wicked. He thought maybe the Lord could touch their hearts. And so he went out to pray. He isn't a priest, he isn't a prophet, just a member of the local Rotary Club. who doesn't want to see Jerusalem destroyed and that beautiful temple come down. And he just knelt to pray to the Lord that he touched the hearts of the people. What happened was a bolt of fire came down in front of him on a stone, right in front of him, and he began to hear things and see things. And the impact of it was so overwhelming, he went back to his townhouse in Jerusalem and retired. And the Spirit of the Lord came over him. He was visited by a heavenly messenger, and he became a prophet in his own right. And was told to go out and verify to the people that what Jeremiah had said would be true. And he told them a number of other things. Now, this prophet Lehi, or that was his name, is the opening prophet in the Book of Mormon. He was told by the Lord to take his family and depart into the wilderness to be led to a promised land which turned out to be America. You remember that he had barely gotten down on the Aqaba Gulf if I can use my arm and hands for a, a map. This is the Suez Gulf. The index finger. This represents the Aqaba Gulf. Jerusalem is just up above. Uh, this is Mount Sinai down here in the Sinai Peninsula. All right. So he comes down here. He marched. It takes two weeks by camel to get to Elap, which is the Aqaba Gulf of the Red Sea. He comes down about three more days in camps, and we think we found the place, Makna, where there's a river flowing into the Aqaba Gulf for several months of the year. His two oldest sons didn't want to come. They rebelled, and so we have Lehi the prophet saying to his sons, help me, cooperate with me. Laman, my son, you're my eldest. 
I'm going to name this river after you. And I hope you will flow into the, river, into the fountain of righteousness even as this river flows into the fountain of the Red Sea. And early critics of the Book of Mormon made such fun of this because there is no fountain. That's a gulf. What do they mean river flowing into the fountain of the Red Sea? Well, Joseph Smith didn't know. He was using Urim Thummim similar to the set that Moses and Aaron had. He just The, the word came through fountain so he was honest he was a humble young man he's only 23 years old he writes fountain the critics said this is stupid it is no fountain it's a gulf and then just a few years ago we found that in those ancient times they always called a drainage basin into a sea fountain wasn't that a lucky guess <laughs> today the Arabs call the Suez Gulf the fountain of reeds as Dr. Hugh Nibley says, there are so many evidences of the authenticity and integrity of this great record that you won't even be able to get credit for accepting it on faith much longer. <laughs> Today at the Brigham Young University, we have one of the most learned scholars from the Hebrew University translating the Book of Mormon into Hebrew. Jonathan Shanari. He is not a member of the church, just a great Hebrew scholar. And as I talked to him the other night, he said, this is a Hebrew, this is a Hebrew text, this Book of Mormon, this is Hebrew. He said, this is not, uh, this is not anything anybody made up. This is, this is a true record. Isn't that interesting? So I didn't follow it up with the next question, but <clears throat> later maybe. He's a wonderful person and a wonderful scholar. Now keep all of this in mind, because do you remember that um, Lehi was told to send his sons back and get a, the brass plates, which was the, actually the scriptural record from, the, from Genesis down to Jeremiah. Remember they got it? Had to hide in a cave and a few things and so forth. And then they were sent back. Uh, the older boys didn't want to go on that trip, but Nephi, the fourth son, he said, Father, I'll go because if God says that we're to get them, I know he'll open the way. And Lehi said, Blessed art thou, my son for having this much faith in God. Now go and take your brothers with you. So they went. And they were successful. They got the record, remember? And then they were told to go up and um, find Ishmael, who had five unmarried daughters, and invite him to join them. And the two older brothers went enthusiastically. <laughs> uh, all right. Now that's, that's all the setting we have now as I tell you this, this last story. In 1970, a great, uh, what's turned out to be a great friend of ours, arrived in Salt Lake City to attend the Middle Eastern studies at the University of Utah. This man is Deputy Prime Minister of Israel, in charge of Arabic affairs. What's he doing in Salt Lake studying Arabic affairs? Well, he couldn't go to Cairo. <laughs> And in Egypt, uh, rather in, in Salt Lake, we have a very famous Egyptian Christian scholar, Dr. Atiyah, in charge of this outstanding program at the University of Utah. And he was going to go to New York University, uh, but the Consul General of Israel said, you must go to Salt Lake. You'll feel more at home among these people than you will in New York. And this Deputy Prime Minister said, you, you must be fooling. 
He said, I have relatives in New York. Uh, I know the people in the Bronx. Consul General said, you will feel more at home in Salt Lake City than among your own people. Anyway, he came out. And this was sometime after a book I had written called Fantastic Victory had been published, and I did not know it, but the Israeli government had purchased 100 copies. It was the first major book to come out in English on the, about the 1967 war. And so they had read it. In fact, I had received a letter from Isaac Rabin, who's now prime minister, saying, thank you for your book. And I hadn't sent him one. I was kind of puzzled. And then along came Moshe Dayan, and he said, thank you for your book. And I was really puzzled by that. But when this deputy prime minister of Israel came, he called on the phone. And come to find out, uh, he said, I have read your book and, and I bring you greetings from Israel and can we have dinner together? So we did. And we had a whole group of fine folks who'd been to Israel and uh, we just had a nice dinner together. And we were sitting there together and his name was Joseph, or is Joseph Ginat, G-I-N-A-T, Joseph Ginat. And he leaned over and he said, these people are so friendly. I said, well, they're all Israelites. He said, Jewish? <laughs> I said, no, they're of the tribe of Joseph. Oh, he said, I am the tribe of Joseph. That's why my name is Joseph. I am Joseph Ganat of the tribe of Joseph. I said, well, these people have a book that tells all about the tribe of Joseph. Oh, he said, I'd like to have one, a copy of that. And I said, I'll get you one. As a matter of fact, he got six. <laughs> but he was so busy at his studies that he didn't read it. And so Irene Staples, who was our hostess at the dinner that night, uh, kept egging him on, read the Book of Mormon. It has a lot of information about the Jews. You must read the Book, the Book of Mormon. And so finally, to satisfy her, he read the first five chapters. He had read it in the morning. In the afternoon, he goes over to the U University of Utah Library the librarian stops him, hands him a book of archaeology that had just arrived, which is in English, but it's arche the archaeology of Palestine. She said, <clears throat> would you examine this book to tell me whether or not it's creditable before I put it on the shelves? He has just read the first five chapters of the Book of Mormon. He flips it open to an article which is entitled Bethlehi, The Story of the Ruins of the House of of Lehi. He read it. He couldn't believe his eyes. He borrowed the book, took it home, got out his Book of Mormon, checked the details. It's about, um, oh, 17 or 18 miles south, southwest of Jerusalem. It has a, a well. It has a cave that's man-made that looks like it was a treasure cave. It looks like somebody hid out in it about 600 BC, or 600, yes, 600 BC, and wrote on the wall. And they know it's 600 BC because when Jerusalem fell in 587, they went to Babylon and changed the alphabet form in some cases. This is 600 BC writing. It says, We know yet Jerusalem will be redeemed, so apparently it was about to be attacked, etc. He was so excited, he called. Sister Staples at 5 o'clock in the morning. He got around to me at 9 o'clock in the morning. He was so excited. So I was just going over to Israel and I said, I'll go see the, the cave and the, the area. 
But when I got over, I couldn't see it because it was in the war zone. He subsequently gave lectures at BYU and the University of Utah, and he said, there's a very good chance that we have the house of Lehi, where this great prophet lived. There's a very good chance this is it. Then he went back home, and, you know, in the church, we were busy. Finally, he came back a year ago last June. He's got a film. On this film, he interviews an Arab whose people have been here ever since 587 B.C., who says, yes, there was a prophet Lehi who lived here. We say that up on this hill is where he used to judge his people. and We built a wall around it so the sheep and goats will not get up to that holy place. We're the only ones that have lived here since. And we call it the Bethlehem. So Joseph Gannat had taken this recording of the conversation. You see him talking to the Arab in Arabic. Then he translates it on the film. Then he took the film and brought it over to show to the First Presidency so that they would know the Book of Mormon is true. <laughs> this Joseph Gannat is a fantastic person, as sweet a spirit as you'll ever meet. He's a professional archaeologist. He says this is beyond coincidence. And you know how our people are. We... We know the book is true, and archaeology is nice, but uh, it's not that big a deal. But it is to Joseph Gannat. He said, I think you ought to come over, build a monument, and say this is the place. <laughs> well, he's been a wonderful friend to us, a wonderful friend. And uh, when President Lee went over to organize the first branch of the church, or four years ago, it was Joseph Gannat who made the arrangements with the leaders of Israel, and we organized our branch of the church there. President Lee met all of the officials, and when um, I had a group over there just after Christmas, and President Lee died, you remember, we were watching television there just before dinner, and here it was, Mormon leader dies. It was headline news in Israel. We immediately called Salt Lake and said, is it true President Lee has passed away? They said, how did you find out about it? It just came off on, on TV. We said, yes, we picked it up by satellite. We got it. We just got it. We got it as soon as they received it here. And it was big news that the Mormon leader had died. Well, I've gone over my time a few moments, but may I impose on you for just a, a few moments... I have instructions here to tell you the story of Gabriel Tabor. Something is happening with our wonderful friends who are Jewish. They are feeling the same spirit we are. And as we reach out and say to them, we are your brethren of Joseph, everything that, the, that Isaiah wrote about, the book that he said in chapter 29 would come forth, we have it now. And it's as much to you as it is to us. They're reaching out now. The Spirit is whispering to them as it does to us. And we're beginning to join hands. We have enough members of the church now in Salt Lake City who are of Jewish background that they've organized themselves and they call it B'nai Shalom. B'nai Shalom. I want to tell you about one of them. He was raised an atheist 
and a communist in Yugoslavia. Romania, I'm sorry, Romania, in Romania. Brilliant scholar, speaks about uh, seven languages. At the university there at the capital city in Romania, he was instructed to study the Bible, the Old Testament, so that young Orthodox Jews could be shown how ridiculous it was and thereby make them communists and atheists. That was his assignment. So he read through Genesis and he got a big laugh out of that. He got over into Exodus and that's when something stopped him. This Moses, 40 years a prince of Pharaoh, 40 years a shepherd and 40 years a prophet of God. He got over to the 24th chapter of Exodus where not only Moses had seen God, but 73 of the elders of Israel saw him, described him, and the finger of God touched the forehead of this man for the first time. His name was not Gabriel Tabor at that time. It was uh, uh, Vladimir Vis. So he read the Bible avidly. There is something here. My ancestors had something. And he got permission to leave Romania and go over to Israel, never intending to go back. And uh, at that time, his wife left him because she said, you're, you're terrible, you're getting religion, you, you're believing this stuff. Yes, he said, I do believe it. And she said, I can have nothing more to do with you. And so they had a communist divorce, which is very easy. You just change addresses. Uh, so he taught English in Nazareth taught English in Nazareth to Israeli boys and girls. He became friendly with a Catholic priest who said, wouldn't, um, Vladimir, wouldn't you like to um, take a little pilgrimage up to Mount Tabor? A lot of Jewish history happened around this mount. This is the mountain of Gideon, and or Gideon Mountain is across the way. This is where Deborah had her battle at the bottom of Tabor. Don't you want to come over with me? It's just a, a day's walk to the top of the mountain and back to Nazareth. So he did. And after several trips, they were sitting on top of Mount Tabor, and the Catholic priest said, um, Have you ever read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah? Well, he said, No, I, I don't think so. I've read the early part of the Bible a lot. I'm not sure what's in it. He said, This is a very interesting chapter because Isaiah is describing the great, glorious coming of the Messiah. First he talks about the dispersion of Israel. Then the gathering. 48, 49, 50, 51. And then in 52, the triumphant appearance of the Messiah. All the enemies of Israel are destroyed. And a great new peaceful government is established which allows universal peace and prosperity. That's 52. Now he said, have you read 53? No, he said, I don't think I have. All right. Here's what Isaiah said. Who would have believed our report? This is the same one who came earlier and was not recognized by many. Some accepted him, but many rejected him. And he was slain, but God raised him up. And now he comes in triumph again. That's 53. With Isaiah saying, nobody would believe our report of the first coming. And this Jewish scholar converted from atheism and communism to Judaism, suddenly feels the finger of God on his forehead a second time as the Spirit whispers, Isaiah is talking about 
the first coming of the Messiah. Not Joshua of Nazareth. Joshua of Nazareth. In the Greek we call him Jesus, but it's Joshua. And then the Catholic priest said, have you read Zechariah? When he comes in triumph the second time and the Jewish people surround him, grateful for, the, for saving him from Gog and Magog, they will surround him and say, according to Zechariah the Jewish prophet, what are these wounds in thy hands and thy feet? And he will say, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And Zechariah says, all Judah will go into mourning for 30 days. And then the Messiah will enter his temple to the east door and it will be closed never to be opened again. And the name of Jerusalem will be changed to Jehovah Shammah. Jehovah the Lord God dwells here. And this young Jewish scholar sitting there on Mount Tabor with this Catholic priest suddenly felt the impact of that message. He knew it was true. He knew the Jewish prophets had testified of it. It just hadn't been recognized. And so he became a follower of the Messiah. And he decided to change his name. He took as his first name the angel of Annunciation, Gabriel. And for his second name, the mountain, where he felt God's finger had touched him on the forehead the second time to help him appreciate what had happened. He didn't become a Catholic. He was sent by the government of Israel to Brazil on an exchange program, cultural exchange. He's in the capital city of Brazil, São Paulo. He's walking down the street and he sees American talking to a group of people in very poor Portuguese. Speaking excellent Portuguese himself, he went over and listened for a little while, saw what difficulty the American was having, and went up to him and said, what are you trying to tell these people? Well, he said, I'm a Mormon missionary. My companion is sick, and I'm trying to keep this appointment with these people here at the street meeting. Well, Gabriel said, tell me in English, I will tell them in Portuguese. So that conversation went on for 45 minutes. Finally, the people were satisfied. They left. Gabriel Tabor said to the missionary, What's next? <laughs> and the missionary said, Would you come to our apartment? And so he went and received three lessons. And he said, That's enough. That's enough. I'm leaving. I'm going to get permission to go to the United States. I will see if this is really true. And so he left. He showed up on Temple Square. It was interesting that Walter Miller, former mission president of Canada, was there to be the temple guide for his particular group. And after he had heard the whole story, he went up to Walter Miller and said, Where do I take the examination? <laughs> and President Miller said, What examination? Well, he said, The examination you give. He said, We give no examinations. Well, he said, you have lessons? Oh, yes, we have lessons, but no examination. <laughs> he said, who are you? And so Gabriel Tabor said, I'm a, I'm a citizen of Israel. And I've heard part of the message. I must stay till I find out if it is true. Well, Walter Miller said, I will take you to a, a church service tomorrow, which is Sunday. We'll visit some people who know a lot about Israel, have been over there many times. So... 
The two of them appear in my Sunday school class the next morning. And Gabriel Tabor is introduced. Afterwards, I visited with him. I said, how long will you stay? He said, till I find out if it's true. I said, well, approximately, how long do you expect that to be? I will stay until I find out if it is true. I said, well, why don't you come down to BYU with me, <clears throat> where I teach? We have a little duplex, and we have an empty room. You're welcome to use it, and, and I'll tell you all about it. You can visit the campus, and so we did, and he was with us for about three weeks, and he was a most unusual person to teach the gospel to. I got a topic, for example, like pre-existence. That's very difficult for many people to grasp, even though it was a common doctrine in ancient Judah. Even the Christians have lost it. So I was getting all ready, and I was kind of leading up to it, and he said, Cleon, are you trying to tell me that before we were born, we existed before, we are eternal beings like God? I said, that's what God says. Yeah, I believe it. What's next? <laughs> I said, well, wait a minute, there's a little more to it than that. But that's the way he was. But after three weeks, he said, well, I have some good friends down in Beverly Hills are from Romania, and I must be with them now. I'm already late to see them, so I will see you again sometime. Well, I said, all right. So he disappeared. Didn't hear from him. Weeks went by. One night, I get a long-distance call. Cleon? Yes. Is Gabriel? I said, where have you been? Everywhere. <laughs> he had one of these bus tickets, you know, $99, uh, dollars and you can go anywhere. I said, where are you, Gabriel? He said, I'm in Denver. I said, well, you're supposed to be down in Beverly Hills. Oh, I've been there too. I've been everywhere. He said, first, I did not go to Beverly Hills. I went to Oakland. I saw the temple on the outside. And I went to church, and it is the same. And then I went down to the Westwood Ward in Beverly Hills. And it was the same. And I met my friends, and I told them about what I discovered. And I told them I would report back. I went to Phoenix. I went to church. It was the same. So I went to Albuquerque. It was the same. I went to El Paso. It was the same. I went to New Orleans. It was the same. I went to St. Louis. It was the same. I came to Denver. It is the same. And I'm coming back to be baptized now. So he came back and I said, Gabriel, what'd you do all of that for? He said, it was too good to be true. <laughs> And right at that time, BYU needed a professor to teach Hebrew. And so he was at BYU for several years, and then the government hired him to go to Tehran in old Persia and to teach over there. So he's been there the past year, but I, I heard from him just last week. He said, save me an apartment, I'm coming home. But he's been the heart of the branch over there. He identifies with the Persian people very well. He's done a lot of good. Speaks their language beautifully. Done a lot of good. That's one of about 25 stories I could tell you. See, a great thing is happening. God is in his heavens. And the Messiah is getting ready to return. He has called Joseph. And now he is calling Judah. And he is calling as many others as will come. But those two tribes have a great task to perform. The gospel of the Messiah has been restored to the earth.
the great priesthood of Melchizedek is back in the earth. And as Gabriel, or rather Joseph Gannat, said to me about a month ago, he said, the church knows so much, and you don't tell anybody. I said, well, we try. I said, for example, what haven't we told you? Well, he said, look at the temple at Arad. We archaeologists dug it up. Years to dig up the temple of Arad. And then the writing on it says that it was presided over by descendants of Jethro. And they said they had a higher priesthood than the Levites. So we went to the Druzes, who are descendants of Jethro. We said, how come you claim to have a higher priesthood than the Levites? They said, why, of course. Moses received his priesthood from Jethro. And Jethro had received it from back in the days of Abraham. And Joseph Gannat said, see how much trouble we had to go to find that out? And it was in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants all the time. <laughs> I said, well, we will tell you as fast as we can. Joseph Gannat said, we must bring your people to my people. Do you understand? I said, I do understand. And he said, I kind of feel like I'm on the bridge helping them across. Do you understand that? I said, I do. I understand exactly what you're telling me. And Joseph, it's all true. He said, of course it's true. Of course it's true. God bless you, my brothers and sisters. Thank you for letting me go over just a little bit, being patient. It's a beautiful thing that's happening in the world. And God will bless every one of you if you'll try and share this message with your neighbors, whether they're Jewish or whatever. Blood of Israel is among the Canadian people, among our people down there, spread across Europe. We must find Israel of all the tribes and prepare them for the great Messianic era. God bless us in this effort that we may be deserving of his blessings. I pray that we may be worthy, that we may be diligent students so we know our scriptures and can share them and spread this great message. That's my prayer this night and my testimony. It is true. And I say it in the name of the Messiah, even the great Jehovah, who came to earth as Jesus Christ. Amen.